Hello and welcome to Pairing, a podcast where we pair wine with art and pop culture. I am your host, Emma Sherjarko, and this episode is the sixth installment of our Harry Potter and New World Wine series. This time, covering the Half-Blood Prince with the one, the only, Mike Schubert of Potterless Podcast. I had so much fun talking to Shubes about this book and the Harry Potter series as a whole now that he has finished the whole series. It was such a treat to get to talk to him again on this podcast. Not only that, but he makes some pretty stellar pairings of his own as we talk about wines of the Pacific Northwest. So I think you're really going to enjoy this one. One quick housekeeping note, apparently I, in my sleep-deprived frenzy of releasing that bonus episode last week, didn't listen to all the audio from the second part of the episode. Whoops. And I released the unedited audio. Thank you so much to listener Emily for bringing that to my attention. If I ever screw up like that, please let me know. I'm not precious about it. And um, just so you know now, it is fixed. So unless you want some insight into my quote-unquote process, you can listen to the cleaner version by removing the episode from your feed and then re-downloading it. Welcome to our newest patron, Nick Amon. And thank you, as always, to our producer-level patrons, Emma Cohen, Rena Sarame, Zoo Yorker, and Allison Turi, who would definitely all grow grapes with Sprout in the Herbology Greenhouse, and to our advanced producers, Mara Zobrist and Michael Beck, who are as sassy as Ginny is in this book. If you would like to join these marvelous folks, head on over to patreon.com pairing, where you can pledge as little as $1 and start getting access to exclusive content like wine fun facts, personalized pairings from me, mini-episodes, and live streams. Come join us. Thank you also to our sponsors for this week, Wink and Care Of. I'll tell you all about them later on, but if you just can't wait, head on over to trywink.com slash pairingpodcast for $22 off your first order of awesome wine, and go to takecareof.com and enter the promo code PAIRING for 25% off your first order of vitamins, supplements, and protein powders. Last but not least, thank you so much for listening. If you've been enjoying pairing and would like to help us grow, why not recommend us to a friend or leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts? It takes very little time but makes a huge difference for us, so I would really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Without further ado, here is episode 46. Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince with Mike Schubert. I am so stoked to be here once again with the one, the only, Mike Schubert of Potterless Podcast. Hello. I'm so excited to be here. Yay! I'm so excited to have you. We've been, I think we've been planning on doing this for like close to a year since we recorded the Spider-Man episode. Definitely, 100%. Yes, and uh, it just, it, it it took longer than I thought it would to get here, but also it's kind of perfect because I think, Mike, you just finished the Harry Potter series. I did. How are you feeling? That's what I just want I to open with that. Great. I feel relieved. <laughs> awesome. Not not in that I didn't enjoy the books, but it's just nice as as right. like a professional Harry Potter pundit, if you will. It's yes. nice to be spoiler free so that I don't have to worry about memes or 
anything else coming my way that happens to have a spoiler in it. And now totally. I get to like guest on every Harry Potter podcast that I want and not Yay! just ones that promise me that they won't spoil things and stuff like Yay! that. So it's uh, it's starting to open a world of opportunity. I can finally go to Harry Potter conventions and not like ruin everything right, by, right. by everyone on the panel and in the audience not being allowed to spoil things. So I think it's good for me and the, the world that I'm finally caught up. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And I was thinking about it because, you know, you would you you would only read up to like the the chapter whatever you were recording right yes exactly and, and so it must have taken it like i can't imagine having to hold myself back with especially the last two books i feel like i remember uh-huh. reading them so fast when they came out and ha- having to like hold myself back and not read ahead would be so hard so i commend you and <laughs> congratulations Thank um, you. I appreciate it. I did it. It took me three years to read seven children's books. Yeah. <laughs> you did it. Yay. Uh, <laughs> well, congratulations. And I'm super stoked because now we can we can talk about you. You had specifically you were interested in this book in Half-Blood Prince. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering now, having finished the last book, what your feelings are about it. And is it still one of your favorites? Uh, what do you like about it? What do you not like about it? All sure. Those, all those good things. It is, it is definitely still my favorite book. Uh, I yeah. liked Seven a lot. Seven might be my second favorite book. Nice. Uh, I, don't, nice. I don't think it gets enough love. The camping chapters are annoying, but not that bad. Um, right. But six, I think, is just a perfect book in that it's not too long. There's, I agree. There's nothing in there that doesn't need to be in there. Um, it's really funny. Ginny mm-hmm. is hilarious in this book. Yes. And I think that's my biggest gripe with the movies is that she does not <sighs> get to be that funny, sassy foil to Harry that he so desperately needs. I think it's very, that's like one of my favorite parts of the book. Absolutely. It's got, it's got fun mystery in terms of who is the half blood prince, yeah. but it's not an overarching point of the story. Like it's not right. all the, the whole story is not just who is the half blood prince. Right. And I think some of the other books, like the first two, the whole first two books are just episodes of Scooby Doo. They're just like mm-hmm, a mm-hmm. mystery book. Totally. Whereas this one, you have that mystery of who is the half blood prince, but that is superseded by the bigger plot of the Horcruxes and all of that plan starting to come together and you get a lot of really fun action scenes whether it's the pensive trips mm-hmm. or them going into the cave like oh, the book so has good. a little bit of everything and it I think that does. there's always something going on and the pacing is really good whereas I felt some of the other books had lulls in them and this one just didn't I agree a hundred percent I would say this one is probably my second favorite okay behind Prisoner of Azkaban um, that one is really good. I think Prisoner of Azkaban is either number two or number three for me. Yeah. Prisoner of Azkaban, also part of it is just like the nostalgia factor, I think, because mm-hmm. I read, I've read i read Prisoner of Azkaban so much more than this one simply right. by the nature of, you know, this one didn't come out till what, like 2005? Something like that. Something yeah. something like that. And so, you know, in, in the times waiting for the books, the, some of the later books to come out, I just reread the earlier books over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of what, I, and I agree 100% with everything you've said, we're definitely going to talk about Ginny and how she is amazing and how she sucks in the movie and uh, how the movie sucks in general. 
Um, <laughs> it's real bad. <laughs> it's so bad. It's probably, it may be my least favorite of the movies. Because it's my I, least favorite of the movies just because I liked the book so much and it was so disappointing. Exactly. I don't know if you look at all of the movies objectively if it is the worst, but for right. me it is my least favorite just because of how big of a letdown it was. I, I agree. That's that's how I feel also is that it's the one that I I was like, you know, some of the other ones I was like, eh, it's fine. Like the movie's fine. Um, but this one I was like, I was angry about it because I felt it just did not capture the essence of the book at all. Um, yeah, we'll we'll get into it later. We'll I'll, get I'll into save it. some of my my scything movie comments yes. for when we discuss yes. it more Sounds thoroughly good. in the episode because yes. I've got plenty. It's funny because this is what happened with um, the Prisoner of Azkaban episode I did with the the Fear the Shame trio with Zach oh, Valenti, yes. Gabrielle, and Sarah. They're so great, and um, and I. I was like, so just real quick, what do you guys think about the movie? And then in like the first 20 minutes of the episode or them like saying how much they hated the movie. I was like, oh, Not okay. surprised. Yeah. <laughs> but okay. So yes. And what I was thinking was really interesting because I was thinking how like Prisoner of Azkaban and this one, I think objectively are like the two strongest books in the series mm-hmm. on their own. And... I was thinking about it. I was like, oh, it's really interesting. Those are the two books that we don't get Voldemort. Like, we don't see Voldemort in either of those books. And I thought that that was really interesting. And something I mentioned to you, Mike, is that I think the thing that interests me most about Half-Blood Prince and, like, all of those things you're saying are true. Everything is so strong. But I also feel like it, it really, like... JK levels up in this one in terms mm-hmm. of it really doesn't feel like a kid's book anymore. And Definitely not. Yeah. And while even in book five, while it can be really dark in book five, there's still elements that make it feel like a kid's book, I feel like. And this one, what I find really interesting about it is how she talks about moral ambiguity or or kind of displays examples of moral ambiguity which you know like in sorcerer's stone it's like there's the big evil bad guy and the good kids fight him and there's like not really that in between gray area and i think what's so interesting about this book is all are all of the characters that we see making sort of ambiguous choices which i love yeah it's the first time you really have to think about some of the morality and if people are good or not for some of the characters right i was a bit spoiled by this because i knew snape was a good guy in the end right right but this is the first book where you really have to question snape and if he's good or not because you've the opening stuff with the unbreakable vow and all yep. of this stuff like this is where the seed starts to get planted more of oh is this guy actually good because if i didn't know he was a, a good guy at the end i would think he was awful and be super anti snape more so than i even am already Totally. Yes. This also is, I mean, later on, you get into like questioning the morality of Dumbledore when you Mm -hmm. learn what happens in book seven. You don't get as much in this one. But then there's other things like, is Harry using the Half-Blood Prince's book? Is that immoral because it's cheating? And exactly. Is the are those spells that the Half-Blood Prince created that Harry used? Like, are they okay? Like some of them seem harmless, but then he uses Sectum Sempra, and how do we feel about that? 
Yeah. And then there's Felix Felicis. And is there some sort of, you know, use case for that? And then there's even other, <laughs> there's things where it's like, Ramilda Vane is using oh, love yeah. potions. And that's oh, kind Ramilda of like Vane. getting rid of consent. So that doesn't seem very nice. Nope, very much so. not okay. <laughs> very much not there's okay. There's a lot to think about with this one. There really is. And, and yes, I do think that the, you know, the big one is Snape. And I remember, I remember when I read this, you know, because because you read you read the end where he kills Dumbledore, but there was no next book. And so it was like, what? Like, have right. you seriously been leading us up for six books, like telling us that Dumbledore trusts this dude and then he kills him? And, you know, I sort of suspected, as I think most people did, that, you know, Snape had this ulterior motive Totally. For doing so. But yeah, and the other the other character that I think is really interesting their story in this book is Draco Malfoy. And yes. um that's one of my favorite things and I love that we finally see Draco not as a caricature. Yeah. And and so that I think she does that really well and in especially oh my god, is this, this is the one that starts off with the the other minister, right? Yes, the first two uh, chapters of this book are great because they're both not from Harry's perspective, so it's super unique. First chapter yes. is the other minister, second chapter is Snape, Narcissa, and Bellatrix. Yes, oh, I remember reading that, and that's it was, oh, so good. I love those. Mm -hmm. it, I think it's the best beginning of any book. It, I think it's fantastic because it's something yeah. that I always made fun of in episodes of Potterless, was that right. the first two chapters of every book prior are just complete throwaways because it's, oh, Harry's at the Dursleys and Pretty he much. hates it. And then they recap what happened in the previous books. And I know that they're doing it because it's children's books and there's the chance that people didn't read the other books, et cetera. But yeah. it is so, it was such a trudge to get through those. And reading this one, the first two chapters being completely different and giving us perspective on people that we haven't seen before and from people we haven't seen before. Oh, yes. I loved it so much. Yes. No, I agree entirely. It's like she finally figured out how to be creative with exposition. <laughs> and, um, it's like, yes, you did it so well. It's really solid. And to talk about the Drago thing you brought up earlier, yeah, just, yeah. just like with the first time we have to think differently about Snape and Dumbledore and Harry even, with Draco, this is the first time he actually becomes competent because yes. he puts together the whole vanishing cabinet thing basically himself. Totally. And also, it's the first time where he isn't super okay with being evil because, sure, it's not much, but when he is confronted with the, you know, imperative to murder Dumbledore, he right. even hesitates and can't bring himself to do it. So it's our first little inkling of, oh, maybe Draco's not a complete jerk. Maybe there is right. some sort of light inside of him and then that gets further developed in the seventh book a little bit but definitely yeah it's it's a good one it's it's nice that in this book you have all these characters that you've built up for the previous five and you feel you think you feel about each of them a certain way and then right. you have to think about each one differently because even even like little things like Ginny, the whole time Ginny is just mm -hmm. Ron's sister. And now over the course of this book, she has become Harry's love interest. Yes. So you're thinking different things about these characters you're really familiar with. And I think that's super fun. I totally agree. And that sort of segues and leads me into the wine topic. Yes. That I, I love when to you talk. do these segues. They're I know. my favorite. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm glad that somebody appreciates them. Um, Everyone should. If you don't, what are you doing? I love oh, it. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, but yes, but just talking about, you know, thinking about things 
in a different way than than you used to maybe um the the wine region that i am pairing with this book in general is the pacific northwest and the mm. wines of washington and oregon which, my somewhat home i lived there for two wonderful years exactly which i didn't even make that connection so you can probably you've probably had more exposure to some of these wines than i have but the the connection here that i make is that i think that particularly Washington, particularly the wines of Washington are really underrated. And I agree. For me personally, some of the wines that Washington is known for and Washington makes really made me like fall in love with these kinds of wines that I thought I didn't like before. For example, I used to think I I hated Merlot because thanks sideways the movie for <laughs> ruining merlot for everybody but like merlot like california merlot is just not my favorite generally but i love merlot from washington because it's much like softer and kind of more nuanced i feel like which feels like this book is much more nuanced than some that come previously yeah it, Totally. And the the big one for me that I, I've talked about a lot on the podcast, I love Washington Syrah. And Oh, I'm so glad you brought up Syrah. Yes, I love Syrah. And um, I've talked about before my kind of tumultuous relationship with Syrah because um, one of the regions that Syrah is most famous for is in France in the southern Rhone Valley. Mm-hmm. And, and and that's like considered the best place for Syrah. And I just am not crazy about French Syrah. While Ah. I love Washington Syrah, I don't know what it is. So I've I've only had one Syrah and it was very recently. It even feels too fancy for me to say that the sentence I've had a Syrah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Because before being scented, I didn't know it was a type of wine. But there's a powderless listener, uh, Tachman, who Uh they work in a liquor store of sorts. Oh, awesome. And basically they message me on Instagram once and they're like, hey, I have a bunch of like wine leftover overstock. Do you want me to send you some? I feel bad that I've never supported on Patreon before. And I was like, yeah, sure. So they sent me like six bottles of wine, which were all fantastic. I immediately downloaded Vivino to be like, here, tell me about these wines, please, because I don't know what I'm doing. And they sent me a Syrah from 2012, which is definitely the oldest wine I've ever had. Yep, Uh, yep, that's good. It was Good a age. Saxon Brown Parmalee Hill Owl Box Black Syrah from the Sonoma County. Uh, so I know it's not Washington, but this it's like a $35 bottle of wine, which is, you know, $15 more yeah. than I usually spend. M- me too. And me too. <laughs> that little $15. <laughs> like I took some sips. And I was like, oh, I get it. And it was really yeah. good. Like it had a little bit of spice, but it was super smooth. Yes. And it went down nicely. I had it with Brandon Grugel of Multitude. Uh, we had a little Love double Brandon. date with like me, my fiance Kelly, Brandon, and his girlfriend Lauren Shippen. I've heard of her. Um, we we had that wine with some with some chicken and it was super good just like really smooth really tasty had a little bit of spice to it which i enjoy and i feel like that kind of like works with the this book too totally this book is like super easy to breeze through which you could say is Mm -hmm, like a smooth mm -hmm. wine and then the the action that happens you could say is a little bit of spice 
Um, totally. But yeah, I thought it was great. I think that makes all sense. I need to now go back to Washington and have a Washington Syrah because I don't think that I've ever had them. But you're totally right. Washington wines are so underrated. I think it's because they're so close to Napa Valley, yeah. but they're not mm-hmm. in Napa Valley. So when mm-hmm. you say like Northwest, everyone's like, oh, right, California wines. And people right. forget that Washington wines are fantastic. They really, really are. And gosh, you're just, you're so good at this. You could, you could <laughs> uh, do your own pairing show. Um. <laughs> I don't think I could because it'd be very simple. I mean, I mean, even this was like, yeah, someone gave me this wine for free, so I drank it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, there's a big reason why I chose to work in the wine industry. And it's <laughs> not just because I'm really interested in wine, but I also like drinking it and not having to pay for it sometimes. Yes, that's my favorite type of wine is yes. free wine. Free that's wine is definitely bottle. the best wine. Absolutely. Um, and But also what you're describing, that wine, even though it's from Sonoma, which is, uh, by the way, is just right next to Napa. Um mm-hmm. But because the the way you described it sounds very much like a a Washington Syrah, um, awesome. because they're very smooth, but they've got that little bit of spice. The thing that I don't like about French Syrah, or not all French Syrah, but a lot of French Syrah, has a really really heavy black olive note to it, oh. and I am not a fan of black olives. So it's I like simply... black olives themselves, but I don't think I would want my wine to feel like I was drinking an olive. Yeah, yeah, that's that's how I feel when I drink them. But that's that's just a personal preference thing. It's not like a quality thing. Uh, mm-hmm. But yes, the wines of Washington are way underrated. They are, just some fun facts about Washington, they are, uh, it is the second largest producer of wines in the United States mm-hmm. uh, behind California. It's much, much less than California. California produces like, more than the rest of the country combined. Well, they're probably. also like three times the size of Washington, so I don't know how exactly. fair that is. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, they um, so so the the wine industry really started like becoming up and coming. I, I don't think that's the right way to phrase upping that. Upping and coming. Upping is the and coming. Term, Thank you. Yes, yes. I think you are correct, sir. <laughs> so it started happening like in the '60s, and I just I love this. Um, the one of the first big producers was called Associated Vintners, and it was mm. founded by a bunch of university professors, yes. which I thought was hilarious for a couple of reasons. One, because I don't know, I'm picturing like even though this is, this is Washington and they probably just, you know, look and dress like normal people. I'm picturing, you know, like Oxford and uh, in England and like the robes that they wear oh, there. yeah. And which then leads me, of course, to Harry Potter. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, man, how cool would it be if, like, <laughs> you know, McGonagall and Sprout and Flitwick just, like, had a little wine business on the side? You know Sprout definitely has a tiny section of, like, greenhouse number six oh, sectioned totally. off. And it's like, oh, no, no, don't touch this. Those are uh, po- poison grapes. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, it's a very... Uh, you know, secret experiment that I'm uh-huh, that I'm working totally. on. Mm-hmm. Totally. No one touch those, please. <laughs> Meanwhile, she has all the lady professors over, you know, once yes. a month for book club and shit talking yes. their least favorite students. Yes. Oh my God. Give me this fan fiction. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I told the story last time. Did I tell the story of when I went on the the wine tour like marathon in Washington that I did? <gasps> I think you might have mentioned it. Where I, I don't went rem- to nine wineries in one day for oh something god. that was supposed to be a three-day weekend wine tour. Oh my god! Yes, this is sounding familiar okay. now. But, but- I, I will say, though, that day was a bit of a blur. The wine yes. was very good, 
And yes. they did a lot of really unique stuff, even making wines out of not grapes. So we went Ooh. to a cidery that did a bunch of really cool yeah. like apple champagne and Ooh, apple brandy wine. Yum. And then there were yum. some places that did really cool ciders with berries. Uh, it was I'm trying to remember the region that it was in, but it's like I think it was like the Olympic Peninsula. And uh -huh. all the wine up there was super solid and all like awesome. very reasonably priced too so yeah that's if you're another near there thing. or if you need just like a good weekend spot do you can do basically what would be a napa trip for probably a third of the cost Absolutely. if you just go to seattle and there'll be less totally. people there and everyone there was super nice and when you did the tastings like the poor i've done a, my a decent amount of tastings i will say sure. that the pores at the washington tastings were very healthy. They're generous. They're generous. That's <laughs> Quite what I like. Generous. That's what I like in a in a in a good uh, winery tasting. Get get your money's worth. Um, totally. But so interesting. So did you go on this tour? Was it like around Seattle in that area? It, it was the Olympic Peninsula, which is uh -huh. like probably a. It was like a, I want to say about like a forty minute drive that did involve driving my car onto a ferry and then Ooh, ferrying fun. across. Okay, um, cool. But yeah, it's like, uh, I'm trying to think geographically wise. It's like, it's probably like Western. Yeah. It's more West. Yeah. I think it's like either Southwest or Northwest of Seattle, but still not too far out. And then we just cool. did all the wine tours during the day and then stayed at a cabin I'm like even farther west. It was so far west that when we got to the oh cabin, God. our phones thought we were in Canada, <laughs> like right on the water. And That's awesome. uh, it was really cool cabin that didn't have any electricity or anything in it. It was just like fire that stoves and, and all of that and like lamps and stuff. It was a cool way to be, you know, off the grid a little bit. And then the next day we went hiking and came on back. It was a very Seattle weekend. That sounds awesome. That sounds like my perfect little getaway. It was uh, great. Yeah. So interestingly enough, probably i would bet that the wineries you went to they probably got their grapes from the eastern part of the state because yeah that's where they get a lot of them yeah most of the wine is grown in the columbia valley which is the mm -hmm. the biggest wine region in washington and then within that there's the yakima valley and the walla walla valley and those are the two main things to look out for if you look on uh, a, a Washington wine label, you know, Columbia Valley is good, but if it says Yakima or Walla Walla, which I love Walla Walla, that's so fun. Mm -hmm. I always it's think very fun. I always think of Australia when I hear Walla Walla. I think it's. I mean, because, it sounds like Wallaby. Yeah, or or Koala Bear. There um, it is. Yeah, <laughs> I always think of the Mike Birbiglia uh, stand-up set that tells the story of him being at a random La Quinta Inn in Walla Walla, Washington. Oh my God. I haven't seen that one, but I think it's uh, really I'm, good. Oh, I'll uh, have to check it out. I think that that one's called Sleepwalk with Me, which is very okay. good, but it's a very wild tale that takes place in Walla Walla, Washington. Oh my God, can't wait! But yeah, I the can't Yakima wait to wines some... are incredible. Yeah, they're so so good. Um, I also just fun fact, and this will bring it back to Harry Potter. Nice. There's also a region slash mountain called Snipes Mountain, which ah. um just made me think that's how you'd say Snape's name if. You had a Cockney accent, I think. Uh -huh. Or if you're Australian, I Snipes Mountain. Oh, yeah, Snipes Mountain. Yeah. <laughs> Apologies to all Australian listeners. Apologies to all Australian and English people. <laughs> uh, no, yours was good. I wouldn't go that far. Yeah. I would say it was there. <laughs> it, it was there. It was. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so Snape can go to mm -hmm. Snipes Mountain. 
He can. And after he kills Dumbledore to to hide away. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) We're back. Not my greatest segue, but. (laughs) It's all good. There's also a a region which I had never heard of, but I was just doing a little research, but called Rattlesnake Hills. And there's also the Snake River. Oh, yeah. I've hiked those. Oh, cool. I really want to go to Washington. It seems people have told me that I would absolutely love Seattle. And it's perfect. Seattle's a yeah. phenomenal place. Yeah, I I really look forward to going there someday. Yeah, let me know whenever you do. I'll give you the best suggestions for all of the uh, all the cool things to eat, drink, awesome. and pinball bars to go to because that Ooh, was also my specialty. Pinball <laughs> bars. <laughs> it's a very niche specialty, but hey, somebody's got to do it. Right, somebody's got to get the high scores. That's right. That's right. And just real quick, since you were, you said you were, you know, you'd be looking out for Washington wines, I just wanted to give mm-hmm. a couple recommendations of some yeah. wines that you can probably find in New York. Um, one you can definitely find in New York, which is my favorite winemaker in Washington is this guy called Charles Smith. Mm-hmm. He is amazing. He looks like a rock star biker dude. He's nice. like, he's like always wearing sunglasses and has like long, long white hair at this point and like rides a motorcycle. And he's awesome. And he has a few different labels. Um, one just called Charles Smith, uh, which is very reasonable. Good name. Good yes, name. Very good name. You know, direct <laughs> to the point. And he's got his kind of higher end one is called K Vintners, like K the letter. Uh-huh. And he's got a project with another Charles winemaker and their their project is called, wait for it, Charles and Charles. Um, ooh, ooh! So I really recommend, um, particularly the Charles Smith wines because they're really reasonably priced. Um, if you've ever seen the the Kung Fu Girl Riesling, the Velvet Devil Merlot, the Boom Boom Syrah. These names are phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. He's got really fun names for all his wines. And they're all really good. And they're almost all under $20 a bottle. So. Ooh, speaking my pockets language. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, my God. Now that I don't work in a wine store, I spend so much more money on wine. (laughs) (laughs) It's very sad. The other... The other big wine company that I also think is pretty widely distributed that's very affordable and I like their wines a lot is the Corviday Wine Company. Mm-hmm. Um, Corviday as in the family of birds that like crows and uh, ravens belong to. Yes, and of course. Mm-hmm. Yes. And they make <laughs> one of my favorite Syrahs and it's called the Lenore Syrah for Ooh. Lenore from The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe. Ah. Um, they're really, really leaning into it. But it's really good, and it's usually like 15 bucks a bottle. It's Amazing. It's, yeah, it's super, super tasty. If you're looking for a good Washington Syrah, that is my recommendation. I love it. Yeah. Um, and then I'll talk a little bit about Oregon maybe in a minute, but, but just going back to... Uh, Going back to Harry Potter for a second. Mm-hmm. Ooh, the other character that I wanted to talk about was talking about moral ambiguity is Slughorn. Ooh, um, good, because I think this guy sucks. He does. And the thing is, like, the way I feel about Slughorn is sort of how I feel about Snape. Not quite. He's not quite as bad as Snape. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not, like, mean to children. but For no he, reason. For no reason. But uh, but he definitely is not awesome. 
But what I really like, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm an actor or something, but I'm always really interested in characters that like aren't good. Um, Yeah. uh, And so the one scene in the movie that I liked is where Harry gets him to to give him uh, the memory. And I do love I do love Jim Broadbent. And I thought that he was very good as Slughorn. Yeah. That scene in particular where where Harry has takes the Felix Felicis and gets Slughorn to tell him to give him the memory. I find I find that very moving, actually. Yeah. I think it's one of the few times that the movies not only did something right, but did it better than the books. I yeah. Think yeah. Harry's way to get Slughorn to give him the memory by really appealing to his love for Lily uh, or not his love for Lily, but his admiration of Lily as a student, (laughs) which sorry, I was just gonna say, why is like Lily Evans slash Potter the, the like savior for these (laughs) horrible men? Like (laughs) she's just, I guess she's really nice and really pretty. So everyone's just enamored with her. Yeah, I guess so. But it like, it doesn't make it, doesn't make them good just because they liked her. (laughs) JK. You know, 100%. anyway, but go, I think go the movie on. did a really good job of it. I think Slughorn I agree. is interesting because when I was getting up to this book in mm-hmm. throughout Potterless getting up to this point, I said, like, there's no good Slytherins. They're all bad. Why does anyone like this house? And everyone was right. like, oh, there's some characters you'll meet later down the road who are good. And the people that they talked about, which I eventually got to, were Regulus Black and mm-hmm. Tonks's mom, Andromeda Tonks and right. Slughorn, which like Regulus... Yeah, he turned good in the end. He was also a Death Eater. Um, right. But, you know, he was young, so maybe that's okay. Um, yeah. Tonks' mom, sure. We don't really learn anything about her except for that she married a muggle and isn't mean. So I guess for our low bar of Slytherin, we like her. Right. I think actually the the episode of Potterless that I was on, that's the one chapter ah. where we see Andromeda for like <laughs> two seconds. Two pages. Yeah. Uh, and then the other one that people said was Slughorn. And then when yeah. I got to Slughorn... I was waiting for him to become good, but he just really sucks. Like when it, when it comes down to Slughorn, he is so prideful. First off, his whole acting like students are trophies for him to collect is really weird and uncomfortable, especially given that it's not just him talking about his friends that have done good things. It's about students that he's taught that are all either famous or related to famous people and their kids. Like it feels weird. Like he's collecting humans, which isn't nice. Um, but then also the whole lying to Dumbledore thing. Mm-hmm. I know that he's not directly responsible for any of the evil because they say that Tom Riddle already pretty much knew about Horcruxes. He was really just trying to get confirmation from Slughorn that he would be able to make multiple Horcruxes of his own soul. Right. But if Slughorn immediately talks to Dumbledore right after the Tom Riddle things happens. Or at the very least, when Dumbledore asks him for the memory, doesn't doctor it. That would allow Dumbledore to start the search for Horcruxes X amount of years earlier. And maybe Dumbledore is able to solve everything before getting Harry involved, or he has a better sense of things by the time Harry is involved. Mm -hmm. And that could have saved a bunch of lives. 
And I think, yes, Lacorn eventually came around and gives the memory to Harry, but because of his pride, he halted that search for the Horcruxes, which limited Dumbledore's progress and put a bunch of people's lives at stake. Maybe even if it's just a little bit earlier where they don't have the big battle that takes place in the seventh book, it saves lives. And I yeah. do think that Slughorn Acid takes some of that blame for prolonging the progress on bringing down Voldemort. Absolutely. And I think, again, coming back to this book being a little bit more sophisticated than some of the other ones, I think what's really important about Slughorn and why JK puts Slughorn in here now is because sometimes not doing anything at all is doing the wrong thing. And um, and that's very important to remember in life that, you know, these these you know, the choice between good and evil is not always like, oh, I'm going to, you know, go to the Department of Mysteries and fight the Death Eaters. Sometimes it's admitting that you made a mistake and reporting mm-hmm. seeing something. And uh-huh. and Slughorn didn't do that. And I mean, he does eventually. But as you said, it he really was was cowardly and made a made a really harmful decision because he was scared of what people were going to think about him. And, and you have to, and like, I mean, you could relate that to some things that are happening in our world right now, Mm -hmm. you know, potentially, you know, not just turning up, you know, it's not enough sometimes to, to turn a blind eye to something. It's, uh, can be almost as bad as, you know, condoning the thing or, or allowing it to happen if you just ignore it it's almost as bad I don't know. right and even on a smaller scale like this is something that i used to run into at work sometimes in my, mm-hmm. in my other jobs like sometimes it's really easy when you notice a problem or something that you messed up to try to think like okay let me see if there's a way that i can fix this or let me see if there's something that i can do to make this not a problem and then you spend right. like a day or two trying to fix something and then eventually you have to get to the point where you have to tell your boss like hey i messed up this thing and i couldn't fix it and rather than telling your boss that right off the bat You've told them now two days later when yep. really, you know, you could have minimized the damage if you just swallowed your pride and straight up were like, hey, I forgot to email so-and-so and I didn't get this thing. Can Absolutely, I, you know, yeah. what do we do? Yeah. And like, no. it's hard to swallow your pride. It's it not is. easy. I'm not trying to act like oh I'm a saint God. here and I'm always able to uh-huh. do it, whether it's work or relationships or whatever. It takes oh a big person to be like, hey, I messed up and yeah. try to move on for it and accept whatever repercussions come your way and then move on. So I know that it's hard, um, but I don't think Slughorn is a good person by any means. No, I I, I, I definitely agree. Um, and, and also, I am definitely one of those people who until like embarrassingly recently in my life was really scared of criticism and really scared to admit that I had made mistakes. And it's funny once you start doing it, it's not so bad um, because yeah, everyone does. Everyone (laughs) everyone does it. Everyone does it. But oh man, especially when I was a kid and, uh, and like a teenager, early adulthood, I was like, Nope, I'm perfect. And then I got to a certain point and I was like, nope, I'm definitely, definitely not perfect. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that's another, that's another important life lesson. Okay, let's take a little break from the life lessons so that I can tell you about our sponsors for this week. 
We are thrilled to be sponsored by Wink, the best wine subscription service out there, in my humble opinion. Wink is unique because with every shipment, you're sure to receive well-made and often unusual wines that defy the norm. I know that the folks over at Wink know what they're doing because they're working with top-notch winemakers who clearly care deeply about the product they're making, which is so important to me as a wine professional. I love looking through the selection on Wink and choosing the wines that I want to get in my next shipment because they have so many unusual selections that are hard to get, even for me, who is working in a wine store again. I just selected four new wines that will be delivered next week, and I chose a Gruner Veltliner and a Frappato, both of which they just added, as well as a Cabernet Sauvignon, because we have a grill again and we're going to need some cab to go with Winston's Burgers, and a Rosé that I've had before and loved. But they also just added a Blau Frankish, which you know is my favorite, talked about that in last episode, along with a Petite Syrah, a Tarika Nacional, and so many other varietals that you just wouldn't see in most places. Also, my favorite part is that there are no fees and no obligations. Winston and I were just traveling and moving over the last month, and so we needed to skip a couple of shipments, and it was so easy, and we weren't charged a thing. And right now, you can get $22 off your first order by going to trywink.com slash pairingpodcast. And it gets even better. I know you all hate paying for shipping. So do I. So Wink will actually pay for your shipping on orders of four bottles or more. So take something off your to-do list. You're busy. I know you are. Just go to trywink.com slash pairingpodcast to get $22 off your first order now. That's T-R-Y-W-I-N-C dot com slash pairing podcast. We are also sponsored this week by Care Of. Winston and I just moved into our new house, which is amazing and incredible and we're so lucky. But as you all know, moving is extremely stressful. Between packing, not sleeping very much, moving heavy boxes and furniture... These past few weeks have been physically and mentally exhausting for me. That's where Care Of comes in. Care Of is a vitamin, supplement, and protein powder subscription service that helps take care of you when you need it. Care Of helps you get back into a healthy routine, whether you're going through a stressful time or just trying to jumpstart a healthy lifestyle. Now that my life is calming down a bit, I really want to make my physical health a priority because I know how correlated that can be to mental health and I know that Care-of will help get me there. Care-of's online quiz lets you know exactly what you need. In the quiz, they ask you about your diet, health goals, and lifestyle choices, and it takes only five minutes to find out your personal, scientifically-backed vitamin and supplement recommendations. I had no idea that based on my lifestyle and diet that magnesium would be a great supplement for me, but I've felt so much better since I started taking it. Because Care-of knows that taking care of your health should be easy and convenient. It can be really hard to know what vitamins or supplements you should be taking, but Care-of makes it easy to find out what you specifically need to be your healthiest. So I hope that you too will experience the Care-of difference. The individually wrapped vitamin packets make it so easy to stay in a daily routine, and they come with inspirational quotes and motivations to help you start your day. They're also compostable, which I love. And right now, for 25% off your first Care-of order, 
go to TakeCareOf.com and enter the promo code PAIRING. That's TakeCareOf.com and the promo code P-A-I-R-I-N-G for 25% off your first order. And now, back to the show. But yeah, uh, and then I think this will this will lead us to to um, perhaps talking about the movie a little bit more. But, oh yes. Um, but yeah, let's talk about Ginny because Ginny ah. is so good in this book. Absolutely incredible. She's really funny. Doesn't put yep. up with Harry's nonsense. We get some good her making fun of Fleur in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Which is super fun. We get her standing up to Harry and Ron throughout the whole where she just destroys Ron after they catch her making out with Dean in the secret passageway. Just absolutely oh, yeah, obliterates right. him. We get Ginny being an amazing Quidditch player. We get her flying into the announcer booth where Zechariah Smith was smack talking everyone on purpose and then McGonagall not giving her any sort of detention or anything based on it. She's perfect. She's, She's perfect so in this good. book. She's so good. And I honestly, because because she didn't get really good until kind of the fifth book, I'd mm-hmm. say, or she's just not there very much until the no. fifth book. In my memory, I, I remembered her not being this awesome, I think, because of the movies. Definitely. And, and I do want to give a caveat, which is that, like, I don't think it's Bonnie Wright's fault. Um, no, I think it's the writing. I don't I think, think it's, it's the actress's fault. I think it's a, I think it's a little bit of a combination of the two, but, like... You know, she got cast when she was 10 years old or nine years old as this character because she looked perfect. And while while many of the other actors kind of grew up with their characters very well, very well or glue up, as the case may be for <laughs> Neville, but but she just didn't quite like like fit the character as well as yeah, she got older. Yeah, and it's older. hard because Ginny's like come up in the series is very abrupt she goes from being like sure she's in the second book but like doesn't really do anything except get possessed and then is more of a plot point than an actual character and then all of a sudden the fifth book comes around and you're like oh Ginny's funny okay and then in the sixth book it's like oh Ginny's really funny and really independent and stuff and I don't know. I, I feel like with child actors, I feel like it's more on the director and the writing than anything to try to get that emotion out of them but also totally I don't know. It's I don't know what happened if they made her a lesser part because the actress couldn't handle it or whatever. But they just like don't she doesn't do as many she things. Yeah, she barely does anything. And the things that they make her do is like, oh yeah, let's have her awkwardly tie Harry's shoes. Like yeah. I don't get Oh my it. god, I forgot about that. <sighs> yeah, there's there's so a whole painful. lot of scenes that are really important and I'm glad they were in the movie. You know, like when Harry randomly thinks that girl with the afro in the in the cafe in the beginning is hot. Right. Really right. glad that happened. Yeah. Oh, yeah, really that was glad that the borough necessary. got burned down um, because that was really yeah, important and we right. definitely needed to see that develop. It's just a lot of really integral oh scenes and I'm glad they took out many key elements of the book to make that happen. Yeah, it was, you know, it was a really interesting choice. I would have liked to be in the writer's room for that. They're like, hey, instead of doing the really cool thing from the book, what if we just have a random scene set in like the muggle world that isn't there? Where Harry right. like, hits on a girl in a cafe. Like <laughs> Yeah, no, as as we mentioned, this movie is I think my least favorite because and in general, I did not I I didn't think the the David Yates movies are not my favorites of the movies. Mm-hmm. 
um, because they don't feel very like imaginative to me, even though I know JK said that like his vision of this world is closest to her vision of the world, um, which is interesting because it's not mine. Yeah. And and I'm obviously right, but <laughs> um, but yeah, this one in particular, like you know, everything seems like it's happening. Like everything looks gray in this movie. And it does. It does. I think it is intentional, but it it is yeah. sad. It's always gray, and then it's always precipitating, whether it's raining right. or snowing or something. Right. <laughs> and I don't know if that's like some very heavy-handed metaphor or something. I think that's what it is, which makes it yeah. less fun. Well, I think I have. Uh, I think I have one last patented Emma pairing segues. Uh, cool. Just talking about Ginny. Uh, I think a really good wine for Ginny is. Oregon Pinot Noir. And mm. uh, and so that leads me to talk about Oregon real quick, which when you talk about Oregon, you pretty much are talking about Pinot Noir. It's interesting because Oregon and Washington are so close to each other, but their wine scenes are entirely different because Washington makes all sorts of wines. Oregon pretty much like 90% of what they make is Pinot Noir, which is a really interesting. really interesting choice. And what I will say is that it is amazing and it is really, really good. And you're particularly looking for, for wines that come from the Willamette Valley Ooh. in, I guess it's kind of like Northwest Oregon, kind of. Okay. Um, but that is considered... You know, outside of Burgundy, it's considered probably the best region for Pinot Noir in the world, and all right, um, and it's it's kind of tough to to actually grow the grapes there, but basically once once they get it to to work or once once you get a good harvest, it's totally worth it because these wines are like really elegant and nuanced and silky and light, um, but they've got like a nice backbone to them. And I feel like that's a good Ginny wine because she is like, she's really fun and she's kind of smooth, but you know, she's, she's feisty and she's fierce and she's got a, she's super clever. And, uh, and also a fun fact is that apparently Oregon has more women winemakers than California, even though they have one twenty seventh the grape acreage. So all right, so yay Oregon and boo California. Exactly. What are you doing? Exactly. What is wrong with you? What is wrong with you, California? I mean, why? Yeah, of, like of all the things to be a boys' club, wine. Oh really? God. Yeah. No, wine. Wine is still. I mean, it's getting better. Um, this is something that I've talked about a bit on the podcast, but you know, I'm always trying to to recommend women winemakers to people because. Because it's still such a boys club and it's so stupid. And like that's the that's the part of the wine industry and wine culture that I just really don't like at all is this. I think it because there's this tradition of like the sommelier being, you know, a you know, rich white guy who, you know, helps you in your 
with your cellar at your estate home. Yeah, and so stupid. I think this makes Oregon an actual perfect comparison for Ginny because you think that yes. Harry, the dude, is supposed to be the one to do all the stuff, but he's incredibly incompetent. Yeah, And both totally. Ginny and Hermione are women witches who are far more put together than most of the boys Absolutely. in the entire series. Absolutely. So I think it makes sense a lot. Yes. Um, no, I think it, it it's perfect. It, I think... Oregon Pinot Noir is also a very good wine for Hermione um, because she's uh, she's just consistently the best. Yeah, Ginny and Hermione are similar in a lot of ways, except Ginny, I think, is funnier and a bit more likely to break the rules as Hermione yeah. can be a bit of a goody two-shoes at times. She can, she can, though more and more as the series goes, she, mm-hmm. she kind of realizes th- that sometimes, you know, the moral choice is to break the rules. Like, the right thing is sometimes... There's a time and place for following the rules. Exactly, exactly. And just thinking about, actually, what does Hermione do in this book? That's She, she always does something She warns awesome. Harry about using the spells... That's right, in yeah. the book. Yeah. She gets jealous of Harry being good at potions. Yep. But it does have some validity because once he doesn't have the book in that one class, he freaks out and only figures out the Bezor thing by sheer luck. Yeah. And and she also she has the, the Cormac McLagan thing. This is the one where mm-hmm. the the that's right. Oh, this is the Ron and Lavender Brown book. Yeah. Oh, and then she sticks the the charmed birds on them. Oh, that's one of my favorite parts. Very, good. Very, very good. good. very good. But yeah, I mean, ooh, so just as I'm looking at this book, uh, this my copy of The Half-Blood Prince, so I've had this since it came out, and there's a couple fun stories about this book. One is that I took it, my family used to do this thing where we would go ocean kayaking in Maine, and awesome. which is super awesome. But when we went, I was like, I was like an angsty teenager. And I was like, I mm. want to be away from a computer for three days because, you know, like back then. Gotta play Neopets. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, and but so we we camped on, you know, like this deserted island, which in retrospect, this is so cool. And then we'd go ocean kayaking. <laughs> but I remember I brought this book with me, which is such a stupid idea to bring a hardcover giant book camping but i left it on like the floor of the tent and it rained one night and so my book is still like all messed up from getting really wet that night oh no and i was so mad about it (laughs) Um, understandably so people take really big pride in like the books being pristine for this book i bought a used copy off of amazon specifically so that i could write and take notes in the book right uh which i in hindsight is very funny because this also happens to be the book where it, a major component of the story is a book that has notes in it. Exactly. Uh, and yep. this just happened to be the first time I did it. Very and when I started posting prints. pictures in that on Instagram, people freaked out that I was <laughs> writing in my book. Like people thought that was crazy to do. And first off, I bought a used copy for like $4 on Amazon. Right, right. Um, but also who cares if you're writing a book? Like, yeah, I don't, it's, it's your not book. like anyone can see it when it's on a bookshelf and it's your book. It's you your can book. Do you it. can do whatever you want with it. But, But yeah, so this book is special to me because it's got all my notes in it and stuff. Uh, But also something that I think is really cool, speaking of the book, is the the cover. I think it's the best cover. I think so, too. 
I, at least one of the best ones. I, I think the colors of it are really cool because it's this dark green with the swirls behind it. And then the, the Harry Potter text of it is like this bright, violent purple, if you will. Uh, yes, and then the, the violent itself purple. itself is, is very brightly purple, too, like when you take off the, the flap. Yes. But one thing that I thought was really cool about the cover is that when you first look at it, you or when you're first looking at it before you know the full story of the sixth book, mm-hmm. you think, oh, okay, it's it's Harry and Dumbledore doing stuff in the pensive again. That's really cool. Right. But when you read the book, you realize this is actually where the, the locket is. Oh, that's so right. Oh my God. I Which is a really cool revelation. Like I love, I love that this doesn't spoil anything. But once yes. you read it, you're like, oh my God, because it looks exactly like the pensive. Yes. No. Oh my God. You know what? I I am not sure that I ever made that connection before. I think I yeah. always just and that's why it's green. That it was the pensive. Yes. Oh my god, that makes so much sense. Because I think the pensive might be on one of the other covers. It might be on the fifth book. It cover? might I'm be on the think. fifth book, and it, that's like blue. Yeah, but I agree. What What's nice about this one, you know, all the other covers have, you know, like all the characters on there. Like like Goblet of Fire, I think, is the silliest one, where it's like Harry in the middle, and then like Victor Crumb and Cedric Diggory and Fleur Delacour mm-hmm. around him, and. But I like this one because it's just like this is a moment that happens in this book, and right. uh, and it's very important. Uh, the other, just w- uh, one other quick little anecdote about my copy. I am pretty sure that this is the one. I can't see it because that's the point. Um, but I used to have this pen that was invisible ink. Did you ever have? One of those. I feel like I, I feel like I did at one point. Not a Harry Potter branded one, but I'm sure it wasn't, at some point I had a novelty pen that did that. I don't think mine was a Harry Potter one either, but I think I wrote in this book in Invisible Ink, which you can look at with like a black light. Um, I think I wrote this book is the property of the half-blood Jarko <laughs> because um, I am half Jarko. So uh, I think I wrote that after uh, after I'd read the book. And knew knew what the context was for the Half Blood Prince, mm-hmm. which just goes to show you how much of a nerd I am. Just thought I'd share that in case anybody <laughs> doubted it. Uh- <laughs> now, secret pens, like I, all the cool novelty toys and stuff when you're a kid, yeah. are awesome. Oh my god, and so you, good! You've got the glow in the dark pens. You've got mm-hmm. gel pens. You've got mm-hmm. those pens that have like four different colors when you push down the little like yep. plastic things yep. at the top. I hated uh, those personally. The, the, yeah, they're, those are a little. <laughs> you've got the space pens that you can write with upside down because why? Yep. Um, I was not? super big into having really cool mechanical pencils for math classes in in middle school. Yeah. I always thought that was super cool. Those clicky erasers where oh, you could make them. it like go yeah, out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I remember those. Oh my god, it was the little things used to give totally. me such joy, such joy. Oh, you know, another thing, speaking of the movies that they left yeah. it out and, I can't, and I'm really upset that they did, is Dumbledore's funeral. I think that's something oh, that happens yeah. in this book. I think starting with the end of book five, J.K. Rowling levels yes. up in terms of writing these incredibly picturesque scenes. And I think part of it is because that's when she started working on the movies. But she was always good at this. But I think especially with the fifth book, starting with that duel between Voldemort and Dumbledore, you really can picture everything and feel like it's there. And throughout the entire sixth book, they do a really good job from describing the cave to describing the pensive flashbacks and everything. You really feel like you're in the moment. Yeah. And I felt like the Dumbledore funeral was so crystal clear in my mind yeah and it's one of the things like i really it's one of those things i just really wanted to see how they did it in the movie 
And I get that what they did was cool with everyone like raising their wand in solidarity, but like that funeral scene is so unique and yes. so many different beautiful elements to it that I really wanted to see how that was done. Yes. No, I, I agree. And you know, I don't totally remember the the funeral scene vividly, probably because I haven't read this book in a in a little while, but um, and and I just remember, yeah, thinking that scene, you know, it was nice with them raising the wands and everything, but it, but but Dumbledore deserved better, and especially reading this, like, it, it's such a shock when Dumbledore is killed. I really thought that he was not actually going to be dead, and he was going to come back in the seventh right. book. Pull a Gandalf. I think that's again what happened. I think what makes it makes you feel that way in the movie is that it's more abrupt. And part yeah. of the, the death is that it is supposed to be very abrupt and you don't yeah. expect it. Yeah. But I do think what's nice is that that last chapter in the book, the the funeral and what happens afterwards, yeah. it does give you that nice sense of closure that mm-hmm. it is done, or at yes. least for the most part. And ev- even reading it, I knew that he wouldn't come back. But, you know, you expect him to come back either as the painting or a memory or right. like what he ends up being in the seventh book. Right. But you, I think you lose a little bit of closure in the sixth with it just being super abrupt. And I get that you can't fit everything of a book into the movie. But when you have scenes in the beginning, beginning and the burrow thing that aren't in the book at all it makes you think why would you leave out stuff that was in the story in favor of the stuff that doesn't like the burrow scene accomplishes nothing yeah yep no i agree it's so dumb oh my god i hate that i hate that scene (laughs) it's uh it's more so that it just when when scenes you like get cut in favor of that, which doesn't do anything yeah. except give Helena Bonham Carter more screen time, and maybe that was in her contract or something. Maybe, but it's it's yeah. just disappointing. I wish, like, I love that these movies were trailblazers, and that it was the first time mm-hmm. truly that a big series to this magnitude was turned into a film series. Yes. I remember even when they were making, it was like, "You're going to make a movie for every book." Wow, right? And it took them until they got to the seventh book, where they were like, "All right, let's make it two movies." If right. these had come out just a little bit later, I think it would have been much more normal to make multiple movies per book. It's like this book deserved two movies at yes. least. And if it came out even later, then we would be having Game of Thrones style where each book would be a season. Right. And I'm assuming they'll do that in like 10 years or something. And I hope they do. Yeah, I think they're going to do that at some point. And I am really excited for the Harry Potter TV series um, mm-hmm. because I think it will it will give us a lot that we missed in the movies. And yeah, and you can do things like make the first season books one and two because not that much happens. Right. And then from then on, you can make the rest of them a little bit longer because they all get a little beefier. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. Ugh. No, this book, this book is so good. It really is. And like you said, it, it really stands on its own. I feel like it, the, yes. the pacing is great and, and there's, there's no part of it that doesn't feel like it should be there. Right. Cause the fifth book was good, but it just, it yeah. came out at peak popularity of the books or when it was like at its highest rate of exploding so i think her editors yes. were too afraid to be like hey do we really need four chapters worth of cleaning in right, the beginning right and like hey do we need the saint mungo's thing to be so long uh, right. i think they just kind of let her get away with everything because the fifth book yeah. should be like the fifth the story of the fifth book is very good yes. but reading the fifth book is a bit of a chore because it is so long and harry totally. is so angsty and i'm not trying to say that he doesn't 
deserve to be angsty since he's right. pretty much suffering from PTSD. So it's yes. valid. But I think if the fifth book was edited just a bit better, that would be more in people's discussions of favorite books. And it just drags a bit. And this one, I think the editors finally came back around. And whether it was backlash for how long the fifth book was or whatever, this one yes. is just perfect in terms of how much is in there, the pacing, et cetera, et cetera, where it's never no, like there's no part of this book where I'm like, ah, I could have done without the this scene. Yes. Everything matters. No, I, I totally agree. And it, it really feels like to me almost like the end from when they go to the Department of Mysteries at the end of Order of the Phoenix to the end of this book. I feel like that consecutive amount of stuff is maybe my favorite part of the series. 100 percent 100 percent because i still say even though the fifth book is my favorite movie my favorite scene or section is that whole department of mysteries yes. on like the Ugh. final five chapters of the fifth book are so, so good. good they are and so good i think that's where jk really hits her stride i agree um, you can see her have like little improvements from from on and on because the first two are, are fine and then the third one you get that's when I started really becoming a fan, when you get the serious reveal and the whole shrieking shack yes, scene. Yes. And you realize, oh, she can make a more complex plot. This is really cool. Right. And then the fourth book really fleshes out the world building of it, bringing in extra wizarding schools and developing some other characters that we haven't seen and seeing the wizarding world as a whole and more than just Hogwarts. And then the fifth book is when it really starts to kick into gear. But I think the sixth, the sixth is kind of a culmination of all of her skills coming together and it, it really is just incredible writing i think i think you're you're totally right that's a very accurate assessment of of the series and then the seventh book is kind of like okay this is it this is the end mm -hmm. and she ties it up really nicely I, if she if does being in 2019 is any indication tying up things is hard it if you don't put is. enough time into them and yep. people can get really mad at your yep. you know yep. throne based television show <laughs> George R. R. Martin. It, it's it's not his fault. It's the it, no, it's definitely fault. not his fault. It's definitely the showrunner's fault. Yeah. No, George R. R. Martin actually lives in Santa Fe. And I ah. keep I keep having a dream that I'm gonna run into him and be like, George, George, what do you need? What do you need for me to get to you so you can finish these books? Like because <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure he's gonna make it. But I feel bad for that dude. He's got so much pressure. He's got so much pressure, but also he has so much money. So. I know. Yeah, he can wipe up his tears. <laughs> yeah, he his, can wipe uh, up with his, his tears dollar with... bills and take a, he can take a nap on his pillow of Benjamins. Exactly. If he's feeling stressed. Exactly. Yeah. Great. Well, I feel like that's a pretty nice place to kind of wrap it up. Um, yeah. With that kind of succinct, I guess, just uh, you know, just you talking about the difference between all the books and kind of their role in in the series as a whole. It's funny because. As I think most of the people who you, you've talked to on Potterless and probably encountered because they're all sort of our age, you know, we mostly, those of us who read them at the time, grew up with the books. And I really felt like I, as I matured, so did, so did the books and so did the characters. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was, ooh, ooh, I just remembered. Um, the last thing that I that I try to do with these Harry Potter series is pair a different grape with each of the trio because um, because the trio, as, as uh, the books go on, they grow and mature. And so I think I already said, I, I think Oregon Pinot Noir is a good one for Hermione in this one. Yes. Because for aforementioned reasons. 
Ladies. Ladies. Woo. Girls doing big things. That's right. Get some Oregon Pinot Noir. It's more likely to be made by a woman. Smart, um, smart, smart. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, ooh, yes. One one in particular that I recommend is Penner Ash. Um, the winemaker for that ooh. is it's a it, that's a great name, right? It's really solid. Yeah, Lynn Penner Ash is the winemaker for Penner Ash um, Oregon Pinot Noir. It's delicious. That's a good one for Hermione. And then I would say I think that I think that like Washington Merlot is a really good one for Harry uh, in, uh-huh. in this book because he kind of takes a little bit of a backseat for most of this book actually I feel like and kind of yeah lets you know he kind of chills out a little bit except for the whole Draco thing right I have a good one for Ron oh yes that actually is Washington I went on a wine tour in Washington once a different yeah. one and I had ice wine oh yeah I think it's really good and this could work for Ron because it's really hard to make ice wine yes but it is. when you do it it's really sweet mm-hmm. so Ron for most of this book is a douche but then finally by the end after like going through the whole lavender thing and stuff he finally comes around and is nice to Hermione so it takes a lot of work but ultimately Ron is sweet in the end that's a perfect pairing for Ron in this book it's so true you got to put so much so much work into him but he'll mm-hmm. he'll come around, and then the you end. get a very <laughs> tiny bottle, and it's very expensive. Yes, <laughs> but they <Yes>. are good. <laughs> they are good. Yes, no, I like ice wine a lot. Ah, oh, so good, Mike. You can just now that now that you you're you're probably done with Potterless, you can just take over your take over pairing. <laughs> <laughs> hello, hello. I make sure, but I've started a new podcast, Pairing Two. Yeah, <laughs> where I do the same thing. <laughs> Pairingless, the crossover. Yes. Yes. Well. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Um, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. And mm-hmm. uh, let's see. I think that people uh, who listen to this probably know you from Potterless. But is mm-hmm. there anything else that you'd like to plug? Sure. The other podcast that I work on is called Horse. It's a <gasps> so basketball podcast that I make with Eric Silver at Multitude. Uh, it's about everything except for the actual sport and the wins and losses. It's just us talking about the silly things like player drama and Twitter beefs and uniforms and all sorts of silly things like that. We share stories from current NBA drama, wild stories from back in the day. Our ratings of our best and worst of very subjective things like the best hairstyles or Mm. tattoos Mm. or nicknames, what have you. And it's been really fun because more and more the NBA is becoming just like a part of like social media and common pop culture. It gets referenced on TV shows and stuff all the time. And our show is trying to welcome everyone in saying like, hey, you don't have to know or like sports to follow basketball. And really at this point, you can view it just as an entertainment source. And here's why it's very fun. So that's been really, really cool. And and, and we've just surpassed making it for a year now. So it's a fun time. But yeah, I would say if you've if you want to learn something new and get a new fandom that also happens to be a sport, check out Horse. Uh, just search for Horse anywhere that you look for podcasts or go to horsehoops.com. I'm very biased, but I think it's very good. It is very good. And I might be, I guess I may be like a little biased because I know you and you are my friend, <laughs> but I think it's excellent. And I think that our oh, listeners would love it because, you know, just like pairing you don't need to know or really like wine, hopefully, to mm-hmm. appreciate it. I think it's yeah. a, a similar thing, except yours. And you can learn stuff. I've learned exactly. so many things already about wine that I didn't know just Aww. from the episodes of Pairing that I've listened to. And you can Yay. do the same for basketball with horse. Exactly. Exactly. If you like to learn, then you'll like mm-hmm. these shows. Really, it's an educational podcast when you think about it. It, it. it really is. It really is. <laughs> 
Well, Mike, thank you so much. Can't wait to see what is next for Potterless and uh, list, keep listening to Horse. And uh, yeah, this has been this has been fun. This has been fun. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Always good of to course. chat. And I'm glad I got to see you in New York recently. And hopefully I'll get to cross paths with you sometime soon. Absolutely. I'm sure we'll cross paths somewhere in the world again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sounds great. Cheers. Cheers indeed. Thank you so much to our sponsors for this week, Wink and Care of. Go to trywink.com slash pairingpodcast for $22 off your first order of wine. And go to takecareof.com and enter the promo code pairing for 25% off your first order of vitamins, supplements, and protein powders. Above all, thank you for listening to Pairing, where you come for the stories and stay for the wine. Pairing was created, hosted, and produced by Emma Scherzarko, with music and audio recording by Winston Shaw, and logo artwork by Darcy Zimmerman and Katie Huey. This episode was edited by Emma Scherzarko. Follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram, at Pairing Podcast, to keep tabs on what we're up to. And feel free to send us any thoughts, questions, requests, and pairings of your own on our website, thepairingpodcast.com, via email at pairingpodcast at gmail.com or on any social media platform. Come check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash pairingpodcast, where you can pledge as little as $1 a month and get access to exclusive content, customized pairings from me, live streams, and more. Check out our new merch store on our website at thepairingpodcast.com slash merch. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends. Thank you so much for listening to Pairing, where you come for the stories and stay for the wine.